Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features a conversation with Shauna Nyquist at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Shauna was interviewed by Ansley Kelly, a Calvin College senior at the time, and their wide-ranging conversation includes claiming the authority to create, the need writing meets in Shauna's own life, the writing practices she's developed over the years, and the joys of razor scooters and dancing in the kitchen. Shauna is a New York Times bestselling author whose books include Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Bread and Wine, and most recently, Present Over Perfect. Her work focuses on the joys and challenges of day-to-day life. To help introduce this recording, we called up another best-selling writer, also known for honesty, vulnerability, and wisdom, Shauna's good friend, Jen Hatmaker. Well, Jen, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about Shauna Nyquist. Uh, where did we find you today? You found me in my office where I have been all day. And I'm going to be honest with you. I am wearing the shirt I slept in. So <laughs> it's like that today. It's one like of those that. days. Uh, that one yeah. of those days. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so we're going to be listening to the uh, a conversation Shauna had on stage at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. And she was actually interviewed by one of our Calvin College English majors by Ainsley Kelly. Um, And they had this great kind of wide-ranging conversation about kind of the writing life, but also some of the things that have inspired Shauna's projects. Um, And I wondered... um, what I know that you guys are friends and um, yes. you're also a reader of hers. And I was curious what um, how you guys met and also what um, what has kind of connected for you in her work. Shauna and I first met. Um, we're pretty sure it was 2006. So about 11 years ago, because um, Henry was a baby and he's 11 now. <laughs> and um, we were both speaking at a conference called uh, after Eve, and it was in McLean, Virginia, and we were both really, really green. Mm. Um, she had her very first book in hand. I had just, just put my first couple of projects out into the world, too, and neither of us were seasoned speakers either, so we are just tickled to death thinking <laughs> about the two of us speaking at that conference, and Shauna, we were recently talking about it, and she was like, if there is video content of that um, <laughs> conference, I want it destroyed, and I'm like, absolutely <laughs> true, and I just, you know when you meet somebody and you, like, instantly and fully and completely love them? Mm-hmm. That was how it was for me with Shauna. And I knew right away that I needed her to be my friend, Mm -hmm. that I wanted her to be my friend, and I was going to make her be my friend. Uh, (laughs) And I did. I don't know. The older I get, the more I realize that I want to... I want to collaborate and work side by side with people that I love, that I trust, and that I believe in. And I really don't have room for anything less mm. than that. Um, there's just not enough hours mm. in a day. I don't have enough energy and I don't have enough bandwidth. And so I've curated my list down to a pretty small handful of people that I completely have faith in. And Shauna is one of them. And so anytime we get to share a stage or share space, 
in any way. It is such a joy to me. Hmm. That's wonderful. Well, one of the things that she talks about in this, when she was on the stage here at the festival, she talked about her writing process. And I wonder, you know, you mentioned that you guys met when you're at just the beginning of your careers. And I wonder, um, she, she mentions that she treats writing very much like a business. And I'm sure this is something you guys have talked about through the years as you've um, supported each other um, through the development of your careers and just your craft of writing. Um, she treats it very much like, you know, she gets, she sits down kind of at a certain time every day. And, um, you know, she's very kind of methodical, I think, in her approach to her writing. And I wonder what your approach is to your writing process. Are you kind of like, Shauna, do you kind of have these like set chunks of time that you write? during the day? Um, are you a little more spontaneous, you know, kind of jumping up from the dinner table when you have a thought or, you know, thinking of something in the middle of the night? I'm pretty methodical, except mm-hmm. when I'm not. Fair <laughs> so, enough. Fair enough. Like, in general, when I'm on my game, and typically, well, always, in the first half of any project, it looks a lot more disciplined. It looks much more um, regimented. It's scheduled. I'm a morning writer. Mm. Um, but by the last quarter of any book project, it's like Lord of the Flies. I mean, it is <laughs> uh, It is whenever a word can get typed on a page, it is manic. It is insane. Mm. Um, I'm one of those people who writes a, a big chunk of any book in the last month until mm. it's due. But um, I'm, I'm a morning writer. That's when I'm the most creative. I'm, a, I'm this really annoying person who wakes up fresh and bright. It's right, annoying. Right. I yeah. readily admit it. You I'm like, that. You what does everybody that. want for breakfast? <laughs> what can I cook for you today? It's just so gross. Right. And so I am, um, I, that's when my brain feels fresh. But in general, like even from a higher view, I'm the kind of writer, I'm a wool gatherer for quite a long time before Mm. I start writing something. I I live a lot of my life inside my head. I think a lot of thoughts before I write them or express them or say them in any way. Mm. And so by the time I sit down and I put my fingers on the, on my laptop and start a new book or start a new project, I have thought about the stuff in going into that project so many times and I take notes. So I have these files Um, Some of them are nice and tidy and organized like a professional writer should. Like they're in my laptop. It's, Mm -hmm. I, is, here's my structure (laughs) for the next book and all the ideas slotted. Some of them are, it's garbage. It's Mm -hmm. like on scrap pieces of paper. I'm pulling things out of the bottom of my purse that I scribbled during a concert. You know, I mean, so it's a combination of both really orderly thoughts that I've been archiving and just random catches catch can. But regardless um, I think my thoughts are really long time before I write them. And so mm. by the time I finally write, I'm bursting. Mm. I'm bursting and it comes out pretty fast. So when you're doing all that thinking, so it sounds like you're kind of gathering notes, like you said, like you're yeah. thinking, but you're, you're, you're writing in, in the sense that you're note taking. And then, and then you kind of yes. shift into like book writing. For, for exactly. Right. Anne Lamott taught me that. Um, yeah. That was one of the things I learned from Bird by Bird, mm. um, which was just that any good writer is a good observer first, mm. right? Like that's right. because it, it, it's just like anything you think you heard something beautiful, you watched something spectacular, you had a thought that was really interesting and you think that you were not going to forget it. 
You yeah. you honestly think I'm gonna I'm gonna write about that, except for for three days later, the memory's completely gone. Mm-hmm. And so um, I I know that that's true. And so I think being a good note taker and a good observer um, is is a really important piece to being a, a truth teller and a storyteller. And mm-hmm. sometimes I can't even tell what it means. So like I have learned, mm-hmm. I need to write enough details so I know what I am talking about. I have I've gotten I've pulled out scraps before with three words on it, and I have absolutely no idea what I was trying to tell myself. <laughs> so uh, I at least try to make the memory coherent. And that 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 is something Shauna talks about in the session too. I think she calls it um, letting something, where she, like at the end of a day, she'll often kind of write um, details about things that happened that day, but yeah. she lets it marinate. I think she says that she lets it marinate, you know, cause so maybe she doesn't, she doesn't even quite know what it means, but she'll yeah. kind of write the details and then maybe, you know, six months later, even kind of return to it in the context of a book project or an essay yeah. or something. I have a really have similar, details. like yeah. a real similar process in mm-hmm. that, um, sometimes I really only have the seed of an idea. I don't mm-hmm. even know where it's going to go. I just know that there's something about it that's interesting to me. And so um, I I can't tell you how many times I've sat down to write an essay and I only have the barest idea. And I think, I don't know if I have enough here mm-hmm. um, to build this out into a whole thing. But mm-hmm. um, I, have a, I have a quote on my desk that I have framed. It's by Henry Nowen. And it says, I do not yet know what I carry in my heart, but I trust it will emerge as I write. Mm-hmm. And I have found that happen over and over and over. And as I start deep diving into that memory or, or into that space or into that idea um, through the process of writing, it really develops into something really full and whole and meaningful. And so sometimes just one idea is enough to get started. Mm-hmm. Well, we're super excited that you'll be joining us at the next Festival of Faith and Writing in 2018. I know. I am too. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am thrilled about it. I mean, I'm excited to come and um, sort of do my part, but I'm really the most excited about coming and meeting other authors and listening to people that I love and respect. And I'm, I'll just, I'll be a fangirl is what I'll be. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I think that's true for most of us at the festival. We're just all fangirls and guys there. Um, yeah. So um, you'll be on, a st- on the stage probably that Shauna was at yeah. uh, sitting on during this, this session we're about to listen to. Um, and we're really looking forward to having you here. So thank you so much for uh, spending a few minutes to talk about Shauna and your own projects um, and we look forward to having you here at the festival in what will be feel like a few short months that's <laughs> right the that's right I can't wait either thanks for having me on today of course have a great day you too and now Shauna Nyquist interviewed by Ansley Kelly at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing um I uh, was doing a little math on my drive in, and I came to the festival for, for, for my first time 20 years ago um, as a college sophomore. Um, and I was a college sophomore in California. Um, so I flew back home to Chicago, and my mom and I came to the festival and have been many, many times since then. And so it is entirely, completely an honor to be with you all today. 
Well, we are so excited to have you here, and uh, and we'll get started right away. Great. So, um, my first question is actually about your most recent book, which is again that 365-day devotional. So, what made that project appealing for you? It's a little different than what you had published before. So, what you drew you to that project? Um, it, it was actually, and I think this is true about most of the projects I've worked on. It came directly out of a need in my own life. Um, I was in a season of my life where I needed um, some grounding and some quiet and some practices that would deliver me back to a deeper connection with God, with myself, with the people that I loved. Um, I needed, um, yeah, some, some, some handholds to get me to a deeper place. And so I kind of re, uh, reconnected with my own practice of devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the, 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 you know, the team had talked to me about it before, and it was not something that in those seasons seemed like the right thing for me. And then when they asked this time, I said, well, if you saw my nightstand, you would see all the devotions that have been meaningful for me, and I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah. So in your own writing process, do you feel like that tends to be a spiritual practice for you, even when you're not writing devotionals? Does the practice of devotion, mm-hmm. is that a The daily... practice of writing, so your other works. Um, you know, I, I wish that was true. I write, um, I write like it's my job because it's my job. And I love my job, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not like a wake up at 3 a.m., write till dawn, let the candles burn down, forget to eat or sleep. Like, I write uh, the way my cousin Amanda teaches first grade. She teaches first grade when it's time to teach first grade, and then when she does other stuff when she's not doing that. So mm-hmm. I love to write, um, and, and I'm so grateful that it's my job, but I'm not like a, I don't like leave the dinner table to like capture my amazing musings. I just type them later when my kids are in preschool. Fair enough. That's probably heartening for a lot of us to hear. So so looking again at some of your other works, um, you obviously write about real life, um, so family and friends, uh, and that can be a difficult thing sometimes um, relationally to steward that. Uh, So what does that process look like for you? What have you learned through that process? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing I've learned is there's a lot of right ways to do it. Uh, Anybody who writes in kind of that narrative or memoir space, there are a lot of different right ways to do it. What I've done... And what has worked well for me is I write the experience as soon as possible after it happens with every possible detail. Like first, last, and middle name, what they were wearing, what their voice sounded like, just to capture every single detail from that experience we had together. And then I try to give it between at least six weeks, up to six months. Uh, A friend of mine who's a writer uses the term marinate. You get all the details down. you, You capture your experience as vividly and in as much detail as you can. But you don't try to decide what it is. You don't try to decide what it means, how it fits in the larger narrative of your life or your project. You just get it down and leave it. And then between six weeks and six months later, you'll know what it means in the greater narrative. And then at that point, Mm -hmm. you start asking questions about, is this my story to tell? How many of these details are pertinent or helpful? And so I tell stories all different ways. There are times when it's super specific. You know exactly who I'm talking about. You know the the street I was standing on. Then there's others that are a lot, almost like a a photograph that's a lot blurrier. I was talking to a friend a couple years ago, as opposed to I was talking with Annette standing on Madison with our strollers, you know? Um, And then I also go through a very, um, if your name appears in my book, you've seen it ahead of time, um, 100%. And you have the option for me to take your name out, to change the details. I ask, did I get the details wrong? Does this feel like an accurate representation? So I'm really far on the real life details, 
but with the permission from everyone involved. That's how it works for me. Yeah, totally. So your process sounds a little bit like you walk away from experiences and you have a sense right away, this is something I want to write about. Is that true? Usually, yes. Um, when I'm in the middle of a writing project, I try, I don't always do this, but it would be, it, it's like working out. Like, I certainly don't do this, but this is what I should do if I was going to work out. Um, <laughs> so I, I should work out three or four times a week, so that's what I'll tell you. Um, and I, when I'm in the middle of a writing project, if I'm behaving myself really, really well, at the end of every day, I'll just take like one page of notes, not trying to find the deeper meaning, not trying to write an essay, not, not connecting it to narrative or project or anything, just this is how today sounded and smelled and felt, and this is what we ate, and this is what I read, and this is what the sky looked like. Because I find that in storytelling, if you try to add those details in afterwards, they can tend to feel sort of forced. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can decide the emotional meaning or the, the parameters or the theme later, but you can never get back those details unless you capture them right away. Yeah. So when I'm in a good writing discipline, I take a, about a page of notes every day. Totally. Wow, that's cool. Um, so when you write and you write about things in your own life that have happened to you, that you've experienced, um, you write very openly about some painful parts of your story. Um, what does that process look like for you, sort of emotionally and spiritually, to sort through some things internally? Well, I would say it's, it's a lot the same. I write, uh, I, the first draft is extremely long and like massively dramatic. You know, it's like, it's like my so-called life on the page. You know, I mean, it's just all the feelings and all the everything. Um, and then the editing process is sort of like dialing it back into what an, any other sane person would like to read, you know? Um, and, uh, so I, and, and also giving it time. So I make sure we get everything out, and then it's sort of pulling away the excess to find out what's left that, that, that becomes a story that someone else would be interested in, not just sort of the, the vomit of my life, right? Yeah. Um, and then I would say I depend really heavily, and my other writer friends really tease me about this, but I basically write, I don't write by committee, but I edit by mm -hmm. committee. Um, I have more editors than anyone on earth. I give out galleys to basically everyone I've ever met with red pens. I just really believe, like, let's get this right. Let's, let's all weigh in. And so, there, and, and uh, there have been times, there were a couple things in Cold Tangerines that I had good friends say, hey, like, you're really going for it, huh? <laughs> and they were like, I don't know if you want to put this in black and white. Like, you're, you might want to keep this back. And there were times when I said, you know what, you're right. And there were times when I said, I understand that you wouldn't put it in there, but it feels right to me. Um, but I'm really thankful for that feedback anyway. And then, you know, the other thing is, I, um, I became a writer because of writers like Anne Lamott and Lauren Winner and so many others. And actually, I saw so many of them here, uh, which was amazing. Um, but what that whole genre, what, what they did, I didn't even know you could do this. Uh, until I read Traveling Mercies, I, like, my mind just exploded, but I didn't know that you could tell, that you could share so deeply the insides of your life like that. And I didn't understand what a gift it could be until I received it from her as a writer, from a writer to a reader. And so my deal has always been, um, it's my goal to make you feel like you're not alone and you're not crazy not to make me seem like an awesome person. I will throw myself under the bus every time if it helps you feel like you're not alone and you're not crazy. Um, so there are times, like even uh, I remember, you, like you run into funny grammatical things where you could either use like the correct thing 
and sound super snobby, or the like vernacular thing, and your smart friends are going to be like, you know, that's not right, right? <laughs> um, and we said, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with the people on this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, I'd rather people think I'm dumb and, con- and relatable uh, than perfect and distant. Um, a lot of times you'll read things in a book or you'll see things and you realize someone has put in details that are, they serve no purpose except to make themselves feel a little bit better about themselves, right? They're like, and then I got my report card, which is a 4.0. And then, da, 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 you know, and you're like, do we need to know that for the story? And I remember doing a specific read through saying, if I want to show off, I'll find another way to do that. This is about telling the truth in as bare and honest a way as possible. And again, it's about serving the reader, inviting... uh, Books have shaped my life in such extraordinary ways. I just, I'm so honored to be a part of that. This is not about image management on my part. This is about offering up a gift, saying, come come with me, walk this path with me. Um, So it's never about making me look better. It's about you feeling connected and understood. Yeah, well, and you do write a lot about, obviously, being present over perfect, Mm -hmm. um, to allude to your new book. Um, So what I'm curious about is what would you say to people who have tried to be open, tried to be vulnerable, um, only to be deeply hurt um, or even betrayed? How would you talk to those people? Um, I would say that's all people, right? Like, show me a person who has fallen in love or made a best friend or joined a small group or joined a team and I'll show you someone who's had their heart broken, right? Like that's how it is. Um, And it can be incredibly painful and that doesn't mean it's still not worth it. And so I would say, um, just yesterday, my husband and I were in the car and we were talking about a thing going on in our life at home and we said, you know, friendship's hard. It's just hard, like it's, it's tricky and you have feelings and expectations and I think we don't talk about that often enough. We talk a lot about, like, everybody knows marriage is hard, right? That's like a thing. We know that. If you met somebody and they were like, yeah, my husband and I have been married for 10 years and we have never had a fight, you'd be like, you're either nuts or you're lying, right? Um, But in friendship, we often think that uh, when something goes wrong in the friendship, then the friendship's over. In my experience, when something goes wrong in the friendship, the friendship is normal, right? I have a dear, very, very, very best friend of 20 years. And people ask me often, we joke about it that she's the main character of Cold Tangerines. Uh, It's kind of true. Um, She's offered to sign books anytime. Um, But people ask, like, how do you maintain this friendship? And I say, we fight and we make up and we fight and we make up and we talk about every little thing that could stand in the way of breaking the fabric of what we've woven over all these years. So tiny little things tweak our feelings and we talk about them. Tiny little things get under our skin and we talk about them. And so I think if you can imagine uh, forgiveness and reconciliation as part of the rhythm of friendship, if you never expect that a good friend is someone who will never let you down, a good friend is someone who when they let you down will make it right, right? And so I think when we kind of give ourselves and give other people permission to fail Mm -hmm. and to to not meet our expectations and then knit things back together, I think that's a really redemptive, beautiful way to look at friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So going back to some of the stories about yourself, are there things or even about your family that you've regretted writing about or releasing into the world? 
No, no. I mean, it's uh, one thing I will say, and, and any of you, if you're bloggers or writers, if you've shared your work in any way, part of sharing your work is um, starting to get comfortable with the idea of being misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of it. And, and at the beginning of my writing journey, I felt very protective. Like if someone said something to me, I'd be very quick to be like, no, 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 that's not, you're not understanding that right. That's not exactly what I meant. Da, da, da. And then you realize people bring their own story. They bring their own lens. They hear sort of what they want to hear. So quite often, I'll, uh, someone will say, man, you're writing about this hard season between you and Aaron really helped us when we were on the brink of divorce, knowing that you guys were in that same place. And I'm like, don't tell my husband you think we were on the brink of divorce. Like, I mean, if we were, I would tell you, but we weren't. So, um, but that's okay. It's not about me correcting uh, the record. It's about them connecting with a story, right? And you essentially become a character that they then get to interact with. And so I think the sooner, one of the pieces of advice I would give for any writer is no matter what point you are in the process, start sharing your work now and start getting used to feedback, criticism, and being misunderstood because it's part and parcel for the writing life, for the creative life in any way. You write a song and people will fall in love with it and use it at their wedding and you'll be like, that was a terribly sad song. You people are weird, right? <laughs> um, you'll do a painting about the happiest moment of your life and people will say it, they love it because it reminds them of the, the dark, darkness and depth of the world, right? It's okay because that's what art is. Art is bringing your whole self to the whole piece of art and kind of the space that happens in between those. And so uh, to, to put things out there is to be willing to be misunderstood. Well, it's interesting that you talk about your audience. So um, when you started writing, were you surprised by the ideas that really took with people, like the things that people tended to really identify with? Or was that not a surprise to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, and I think that's true for every writer. I mean, there are, <laughs> there are chapters in the books that I think, like, oh, this is gold, right? I've never heard a word about them from anyone. Like, no, <laughs> nobody liked them. Like, none. Totally fine. Um, and then there are some that I literally, I'm like, if I have to read this one out loud again, I'm going to jump off a bridge. Uh, but they, other people like them. And that's just, again, that's creating, that's making things. That's, um, we bring different things, we connect with different things, and that's totally part of the process, and that's okay. Yeah. And it sounds like you think a lot about your audience when you're writing. Um, so when you set out, um, did you have a sense of who you were writing for, or did the audience sort of materialize before you? Uh, well, the audience materialized <laughs> did, yes. very, very, very slowly. Um, uh, but I will say, um, so I started, uh, my first book was about 10 years ago. And um, I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid. I worked in a church at the time. And there were a lot of books, there were a lot of very literary books, right? And then there were a lot of like, this is how to be a Christian books. And I loved these books, but I was a Christian. But I didn't feel particularly represented by this way of speaking and writing. And I knew that I wasn't alone in that. And, um, and so I wanted to offer out a hand of friendship and understanding to people who want to be a part of the community of faith but don't necessarily know all the right words and signals, right? Um, and I have a group of girlfriends. I, um, I have seven friends from high school. We've all stayed in touch. We're all still very close. Um, and I, at the time, I was the only one who was a person of faith. 
but they are phenomenal. They are the smartest, most articulate, most creative. They're just rock stars. I adore them. And I thought, I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to use the words that I would use to them. Um, to smart, interesting people who don't know the inside baseball of church culture, right? Because there are books for them. And they're, they're like, there's like tons and tons, and they're great. And if those work for you, do it. But I wanted to essentially have a conversation with my best friends um, who didn't necessarily find themselves uh, represented in that community. And those are still the women I think about when I write. Yeah. So talking a little bit about the church, um, that's something that you don't write a lot about was growing up as a pastor's kid. Um, but as a pastor's kid, I know that that is a unique experience uh, for a childhood. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about how that's maybe influenced you? Well, you know, the first thing is, um, every pastor's kid knows this, I think um, it was relatively easy for me to make the jump into kind of everybody knowing my business as a writer because everybody already did, right? So at least this time I got to tell the stories, right? Um, so I, obviously I grew up with my dad telling stories about me all the time. And like, and you know, I would tell him sometimes like, listen, listen, listen. fine, fine, fine. You're gonna tell that story. I, I, know you, I know I can't stop you, but if you could at least specify that I was two when it happened. <laughs> And not right now when I'm 17. Like, um, so I grew up with just a general sense, I think, of openness. Um, but at the same time, part of the reason I, I, I think I will probably start writing more about our church and my feelings about the church and my experience growing up in the church, but it was very important to me, very specific. Um, I am not a pastor. Um, I'm not an extension of my father's ministry, although I adore it and bless it. Um, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm not writing to you from a position of authority or expertise, theological or otherwise. I'm a lady with a French degree talking to you about her life. And, and it, I, I, that was really important to me at that time. This um, publishing for me was not, um, I'm a large church pastor and one of the things I do is also publish. Publishing for me was like a a brainy little bookworm who loves books and stories more than anything in the world. And it was really important to me that those were two different things. Yeah, totally. So uh, talking a little bit about the authority to write, uh, there's a, a section in Bittersweet, and I'll go ahead and read it just so everyone's familiar with it. Um, it says, the world doesn't need another band per se. It doesn't, strictly speaking, need another book or another photograph or another album. The general world population will survive without one more stage production and one more gallery showing. This is the thing, though. You might not. Um, so my question is, does our own need to create give us adequate authority to write, or is there more to it than that? I would actually, I think it's a great question and a really important one, and I would take it one step even before that. It's not your need to create that gives you the authority to create. It's the fact of you having been created. So if you're a person, you have the authority to make things. Because you were created in the image of God who is a maker, who's a creator. And if you bear his image, then you have all the authority in the world to be uh, a bearer of a message of any kind. And I think that, um, and you get to decide the extent to which you do that in your life. But um, I was so, um, so fearful. And so, I mean, it took me till like, Maybe two years ago, like if, someone, if I was on a plane and someone asked me what I did for a living, I would tell them nothing. Um, I, I was like, no, 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 it's not. And my husband would be like, 
Actually, she has written four books. I'd be like, oh, like whatever. Um, <laughs> it was really hard for me to say, this is what I do. Um, and I had a really hard time, uh, and I still sometimes do, and what I had to come back, back to, this is, this is what helps me, um, you know, from, from like a philosophical standpoint. I have the right to create because I've been created, period. Not because I'm smarter, because I'm not, not because I'm this, not because I'm that, that, because all of us, every human, has the authority to do the thing that our creator also did, right? And then the more practical side of it is I thought about it like this. Listen, they're not like taking boxes of my books and handing them out in prisons and you can't get released until you read them, right? No one has to read them. That's the deal. I have every right to write it and then everyone else on earth except like my mom can hate it, <laughs> right? And I think about that, like my husband is a, a songwriter and a musician, and we talk about it, and we talk about um, we, are, we want to live firmly on the side of the creators, not the consumers. And so in our house, we practice a discipline where we don't say anything negative about something that someone else has made. doesn't mean we like it. We are obscenely opinionated, right? Like no shortage of feelings, right? But we side with the creators because we know how hard it is to make stuff. And so instead of watching Saturday Night Live and being like, oh, pitchy, we're like, you know what? Could you stand up there and sing that song? I couldn't. Way to go, right? Um, and so you have the right to make whatever you want, and the world has the right to walk right by it. And that, for me, that's very freeing. We're not like shoving it down people somewhere. It's not like, lock the doors, everybody, hand up the books, you know? Um, you can uh, I have dear friends who will not read my books. Just hate it, just think it's ridiculous. Totally fine, but they respect the fact that I make things. So we all don't have to like each other's stuff, but we side with the creators, not the critics, not the consumers. Yeah, so touching on that last point, um, so it's great to realize that you don't have to shove your work down anyone's throat, but then there's the flip side of that, which is sort of the terror of creating something and then having no one care about it. Um, oh, yeah, so, I know this. Yeah, I so could, I've you done talk, this. could you talk a little yes. bit about that experience? <laughs> um, one of the things, my editor is here, and I love her, and one of the funny things she says sometimes is, she, so she was telling me, um, you're, she was being so, so nice, and she said, you're like the perfect example that I hold out to younger writers. I'm like, I am? She's like, yeah, because your first book sold like just like a tiny bit, and then your second book just like a tiny bit more, and there was no like viral posts, and there was no like New York Times, and I'm like, oh, I know, I know, I totally, I've, I've heard you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's true. I, um, Cold Tangerines was not met with great fanfare. It was, um, like, like a couple people bought it at Schuler's. Totally fine. Um, and then Bittersweet, a little bit more. And Bread and Wine, a little bit more. And in those years, I spoke at every MOPS group in the state of Michigan. And every college classroom. And a lot of chapels. And a lot of... And that's... Um, but I had written a book. An actual hold-it-in-your-hands book, which is the only thing I ever wanted to do in my whole life. I never wanted to be a ballerina or an astronaut. I wanted to be a writer. And I was. And, and so you just, the, the joy of having done the thing you feel like you were made to do is so much more valuable 
than the outside response or lack of response. Yeah. So going back to Cold Tangerines, and you've already talked a little bit about your creative process, but how has that changed since the writing of that first book? Well, I would say every, every, uh, every book has felt really different to me. And some of it is, for those of you who are parents of small kids, um, my writing routine changes completely year to year based on my kids and their school schedule and their childcare situation. So I always just take it a year at a time. Um, and it changes all the time. And there are certain books, like Bread and Wine was really easy for me to write in like small little bursts. I could work for three hours. I could test a couple recipes after the kids went to bed. I could, like it was really easy for me to just dip in and out of it. This book that's coming out in August was I really found, like I had to go away maybe three times in the year that I was writing it to like deep dive, solitude, silence, sit on the lake. Like it, it needed a... a deeper, kind of shut out everything else, go all the way into it. And so I think every book is different and every, and I think your, your style changes over time and you're, you know, so I don't have a lot of rules about how I need to work. Um, and, and I find it does change over time. Are there lessons that really stand out to you saying like, oh, like I wouldn't do it this way again or? Yes. Okay. Um, you know what, you know what Jack is Paul. so helpful? An outline. I have never used one. And every time I get done with a book, I'm like, next time, Carolyn, next time, make me make an outline. And then I try, and I just make like a half-hearted list, and I email it to her, and she knows I'm never going to do anything with it. And then about halfway through, I'm like, what is this book even about? And she's like, maybe an outline. So <laughs> it would be, I can't personally do that for whatever reason. Um, I, I just like, my brain just won't. It's like I make a list, and I get tremendous glee from not doing it, which is... <laughs> Um, I think an outline would be super helpful. Yeah. Well, you'll have to let us know if, if it does hold true. I will. I will. If, if you I'll ever, definitely let you know. If you ever get around to using yeah. one. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so, yeah, what can you tell us about your latest but yet-to-be-released book? So, uh, Present Over Perfect will be out in August. Actually, just uh, while we were standing backstage, I got the um, like first pages, the typeset copy, on my phone, I was like opening it, and I was like, oh, it looks good. Um, so we're right at the tail end of that process, and essentially every book I've written has not been something that I know, but something that I need to learn. So um, I needed to learn how to weather heartbreak well, and so I wrote Bittersweet. I needed a practice of devotion and grounding, and so we did Saber. And Present Over Perfect is just completely, uh, when I was 36, I had two kids. I was in the middle of finishing bread and wine. I was traveling um, sometimes 40 times a year. Um, and I got to a point where I loved my life, but I didn't like the person that I was. And I was so tired that I couldn't really connect with myself, with God, with my family. Everything felt muted and exhausted. And I said, I need another way to live, and I'm going to find it. And I don't care what I have to do. And so Present Over Perfect is that essentially three-and-a-half-year journey in my life. And so it starts off with, like, you know, like time management stuff, like work less and blah, blah, blah. And then it, it, um, I, I thought that would solve it. Um, but what I realized through the process of writing about it and living it was this was not about poor time management skills. This was about a belief that I had to hustle for my value on this planet. 
and that if I was, uh, that I had to like pay cosmic rent to keep living here, that I had to hit some impossible set of standards in order to be valuable in some way. And that construct made me exhausted at a profound level all the time. And so the process for me has been a lot about um, learning what most kids learn in Sunday school when they're like five years old, about God's unconditional love and how that changes and rearranges and grounds everything. When you are able to dwell deeply in the reality of his unconditional love, all of a sudden, whatever you do or don't do in a day matters a lot less. Whether you succeed or fail, whether you're a star or totally forgotten, all those things, whether people think you're amazing or terrible or highly responsible or kind of a flake, none of it matters so much because your being is grounded in this depth of love. And that journey for me has been absolutely life-changing. And so that's what the story of present over perfect is, is um, perfect is no longer something I'm shooting for, but to be truly present and connected to what is, to the goodness right in front of us, to the people that are most important to us. Um, I want to give the best of my day and my life and my heart to the people right in front of me, not the people out there who can say things about me on the internet. I want to be truly present to the best, most important things in here. That's where life is. Is it hard to do that while still living really passionately and intensely and chasing after things sort of with your whole heart? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's always a balance. My husband and I are both very passionate. We love our work. It's very easy for us to both overwork. Um, I love kind of the hospitality and community and gathering side of life. And it's really easy for my excitement for that to make our calendar overly full. Um, but a lot of it comes down to that practice of silence in the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And um, I find that if you're practicing silence in some way every day, you don't get too far off track in the course of 24 hours, and it's easier to get back, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's been like six months since you've truly been quiet, you can get really far off track. And so that the practice of silence um, in, in prayer for me is that thing that helps me kind of assess the pace with which I'm living, the intensity, uh, am I rested enough, am I living kind of with a heart drenched in grace or like clenched up with earning and proving. It's in the silence that I'm able to kind of assess that. Yeah, totally. And, and do you find that working through this stuff with people, I'm assuming, is a helpful thing also? So do you have environments in your life where you're able to think through these things with people? Totally. Um, I have a, a group of best girlfriends. Um, we started off cooking together, and now we've just become like we everything together. They're my just best daily, all the time people. Um, and I find, you know, the more you talk about it, the more people will actually take you seriously. And so, you know, and this is, applies in anything. If you say, I'm going to publish a book by the end of this year. If you say it out loud enough times, people are going to think you're going to do it, and they're going to ask you about it, and then you're going to have to do it, right? Which is amazing. Um, if you tell people, I want to live a more connected, slower, simpler life. That's important to me. I'm terrible at it, but I want to. Then when they see you starting to kind of, 
make your life sort of crazy. They're like, hey, pumpkin, weren't, weren't we doing like a simple, you know? And my girlfriends are so good at reminding me. Like, mm -hmm. what, what does it look like to be present here? What does it look like to slow down? What does it look like to simplify? Mm -hmm. So that's very much a conversation that's kind of in the water in our community. Yeah, well, and I think it's timely for, for students as well. Mm -hmm. So I am a student here at Calvin, and I know that there are a number of students in the audience. So what would you say to us um, in this frantic time of life, um, which probably is no more frantic than any other time of life, but it certainly feels that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. Do you have particular advice for young people? Well, um, this is not the advice you're looking for at okay. all. Like, not at all. That's just fine. Um, That's okay. <laughs> but whenever I'm on a college campus, um, there's one thing that I say. Like, they can ask me to talk about anything, and I'll do it eventually, but I will also I'll always say this thing. Um, if you're a college student, if you're anybody, if you're a person, but especially if you're a college student, <laughs> you are significant with or without a significant other. You are significant with or without a significant other. We live in a culture that is like totally obsessed with um, marriage and diamonds and romance, and we confer status on people if they decide to get married to each other. We give them like towels and blenders, and it's so weird, right? Like it's not an actual achievement just to like find someone and get married to them, but we act like like look what you've done. I want to give you fancy things, you know. Um, and it's really easy when you're a young adult to feel like you're not moving forward in the way you should if you haven't yet found your person. And I'm old enough now where a lot of the friends who rushed to find their person out of fear or brokenness or loneliness, those marriages started and now they're done, right? Um, I, my husband and I did not meet in college. I thank God every day that I didn't marry someone I dated in college. <laughs> they were lovely people, but not lovely for me to be married to. Um, and I, so I got married when I, well, so I, I taught at a college once, and I, right beforehand, I was, I don't know what I was going to talk about, but um, right beforehand, she was, she introduced me, I'm like standing off stage, and she's like, one thing you need to know about Shauna, this college students, she has a lot, a lot of wisdom to share because she got married later in life. I got married the week I turned 25. I was like, like, you make it sound like I was a senior citizen when I got married. But they were like, oh, how did you make it through? I was like, well, I got a job and I rented a house and I don't know, like it wasn't like a, a trial. Uh, you know, but there's this pervasive idea in culture that you're not there yet unless you're part of a pair. It's just not true. Some, some of the worst people I know are married, for real. <laughs> and some of the best people I know are not a part of a relationship right now. And some of them desperately want to be, and some of them don't, and both are okay. And so I, I think one of the things, clearly, that I get all wound up about is um, a lot of times I'll talk to college students and they won't tell me about the amazing things that they're learning, that they're writing, that they're creating, that they're researching. They tell me about how scary it is to not have found their person before graduation. And I, let's, let's make that not a thing anymore. Let's give ourselves a lot more space and a lot more time and a lot more dignity that, that you are significant no matter what your relational status is.
one one tiny more thing, and then I'll totally then I'll let you You're ask totally more questions. You're totally good. <laughs> On that topic, um, the the guy or girl that you are currently spending 100% of your emotional energy texting um, right now, statistically speaking, you will never see them again after you break up, right? But the, the women that you've lived with for four years, the men that you've lived with, the people you've been on a team with, the people that have been in your major, the people that you studied abroad with, these people might be a part of your life forever. So again, like the guys I dated in college, we don't like go to lunch, right? <laughs> but the friends that I studied with, that I traveled with, that I lived with, are such an important part of my life even now. They speak into my writing, into my marriage, into my parenting. And so if you're thinking about what matters here in your time at college, what matters is time building memories with the friends who might be a part of your life forever, not giving all of your mental energy to someone that probably is not going to be a major player in your future. Does that make sense? I know none of you will do that, but I just like to say it. Well, you are totally right. That was not the advice that I was expecting, but it was wonderful nonetheless. And, and I'm not saying you won't do it. I didn't do it. So, but it just deserves to be said. Yeah, totally. So you talk a lot about relationships and the importance of relationships, um, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about lonely seasons and people who struggle with loneliness. Um, what does all of this look like when you don't feel like you're surrounded by a good group of people? Well, I would say, you know, like we talked about before, friendship is hard. And I think it's really helpful to just say that out loud. And it takes a lot of energy. And especially when you're just trying to make friends, it's a lot like dating, which is like kind of awful, you know? Um, and, and so I would say, first of all, if you're in a lonely season, put a plan of effort toward connecting with people. Ask someone out to coffee, and you'll know at the end of coffee if you want to have coffee with them again. And if you don't, ask a different person. And if you don't, ask a different person. But friendship takes work, and it doesn't happen without somebody making it happen first. And so a lot of times people feel lonely. Then if you talk with them about the choices that they're making, they're not really um, doing that work to take the risk to connect with people. And then I, this is like the dorkiest thing I'll ever say. But in the loneliest seasons in my life, I mean, this is like, I feel like I'm among people who might understand this maybe, but um, books were my friends in my lonely seasons of life. And I can tell you the authors and the stories and the characters that kept my heart company. Uh, when we just first moved to Grand Rapids, I was so lonely. I had no friends. My husband worked at a church, and all day long he would like talk with fabulous people, and I would like sit at home and wait for furniture to be delivered. I mean, it was just awful. Um, and I read hundreds of books, and they made me feel less crazy and less alone. And they always have since I was a little girl. Books are my greatest medicine for anything that's wrong with me, but especially for loneliness. Is that part of why you're passionate about making people feel connected through your work? something you talked about earlier. Absolutely, when I actually had lunch with a bunch of people yesterday and, and one of them asked me something about, he essentially was saying, what does hospitality and your focus on food and the table have to do with the rest of your life? And I said, well, I think, as, as best I can tell, if, you, if you're the kind of person that talks about like spiritual gifts or something like that, my greatest gift, the thing I've been given, my responsibility to offer to the world is hospitality. It's saying to people, you are known, welcomed, loved, and enough. 
And I say it through books, and I say it on the stage, and I say it when I invite you into my home, and I say it when I talk with you at preschool drop-off. What I'm doing with my life is all an extension of hospitality. I have friends for whom their books are an extension of their leadership or their um, imagination or their uh, ability to teach and instruct or their ability to cast a vision for a better world. For me, it's hospitality. It's come in. You're safe. Stay with me for a while, and we will be safe and comfortable together. So you talked about books being your friend. Um, are there particular works of art, music, books that are really inspiring you right now? That's a great question. Um, I'm just reading uh, the Neapolit Neapolitan series. Uh, my brilliant friend, have any of you read that? It's great. It's kind of weird, but I really like it. Um, and everyone told me it takes about halfway through the first book to get into it, and I have found that to be true, and now I'm really excited about the rest. Um, I am crazy about uh, both Johnny Swim and The Lone Bellow. Um, I am the Florence and the Machine, How Big, How Deep, How Beautiful, is like on repeat in my whole life right now. I love it. Um, so those are the albums that I'm really, I, li I listen to those three probably more often than, any, than anything else, when I'm writing especially. Um, a couple books that I've loved recently, um, Seth Haynes' book, Coming Clean, is fabulous. Uh, Jonathan Martin has a book out in June called How to Survive a Shipwreck. It's so beautiful. Um, I think I read something just recently on vacation that I just loved. I'll, have to, I'll, I'll work on thinking of it. Sounds like a point. Um, and I just got the L. King um, Love Stuff album, and it's fantastic. I love it. So that's, that's all I'll give you for awesome. now. Yeah, that's great. It's a great list. I'm sure people are jotting things down as we speak. Um, so here at the festival, obviously, this is a place where people come for inspiration. Um, but Grand Rapids is a place that you've talked about as housing a lot of wonderful memories for you and also some painful memories. Um, so what is it like for you to be back here at the festival and in Grand Rapids? Mm -hmm. That's such a good question. Um, I don't know if you guys have places like this in your life where, like, like, for a long time, to be totally honest, Grand Rapids for me was like the scene of a crime. Like, the, um, we moved here, and in the six years that we were here, they were the hardest six years of my life. Um, I got fired in a really embarrassing public way from a job I absolutely loved, and it, like, uh, tore me up. I was like, basket case. Um, I had a really painful, scary miscarriage and a lot of medical follow-up. And we had a pretty rocky financial time, like everybody else having a financial rocky time during that time. Um, and uh, because of how I left my job, a lot of my relationships were all kind of screwed up, and I was lonely, and I was afraid. And um, so this, this is a place that has, uh, I'm reminded of a lot of wounds when I'm here. At the same time, I became a mother here. Our son Henry was born at Spectrum downtown. I became a writer here. My first editor, Angela Sheff, offered me a contract at the Panera on 44th Street on a Tuesday in January. Um, those two things changed my whole life. Um, I made some of the best friends of my life. I'm gonna have dinner tonight with three girls. Um, so two of them, when we moved to Grand Rapids, um, the day we were moving in, I was like, someone was like moving a stove, like delivering a stove, and all of a sudden I hear voices and it's these two girls, and they're carrying a bouquet of orange flowers. I'm like, hi. Who are you? And they said, we're your new best friends. And I was like, oh, these people are nuts. Um, and then they were. They were totally my new best friends. Um, and so that was, you know, 
13 years ago. And those two and another woman, woman have, been, have become the kind of friends that will be a part of my life forever. And so while Grand Rapids was a place where there was a lot of pain, it was also a place where a lot of really beautiful things happened. Um, I saw Sleeping at Last here, and they played the song Needle and Thread that like made me cry like a little baby. Um, I met some of my writing heroes here at the festival. Um, Grand Rapids is both, as are most places in the world, right? Um, and so it's not about it being only the scene of a crime. It's a scene of a crime, and it's totally holy ground. It's where I became a mom. It's where I became a writer. It's where I found my voice in a lot of important ways. And, and also, um, Marie Catrib, um, the Green Well, and the Real Food Cafe. So those, that's, there's some downsides and some upsides. The culinary scene is definitely an upside yeah. in yeah. Grand Rapids, yeah. Uh, so how do you work through writing some of those painful stories, things that involve people where lots of hurts happened? How do you think through some of that? How should we steward that as writers? Um, I'm very uh, conservative on that side. Again, I write it all out in like the messiest, barfiest, get it all out way, and then we cull many, many, many times. So for example, when I got fired, um, I had to write about that, like I had to. It was so much a part of my life and story, but it involved a lot of other people. And so I actually gave those chapters to the team of people that I used to work with. And I said, does this feel honest and honoring to you? Do you feel comfortable with this? Do you want me to omit these details? Am I saying this wrong? Um, there was one story in, I think, Cold Tangerines where I was talking about uh, being jealous of a friend. And I thought, you know what, if I put that person's name in there, that's really weird for them, right? They're like, oh, so I guess you're the one that Sean is jealous of. You know, that's a weird dynamic in, in, the, in the real life. Um, and so to honor her, I changed all the details. And, you know, so she doesn't have to carry that around, you know, between us. So, but I would say you write it all out as real and honest and real time and full of details. And then with time and smart people, you decide which part of the story is actually for everyone and which part of it was just for you. So looking back on the books that you've written, do you have one that stands out as particularly beloved or sort of a favorite for you? Um, I've never been more excited about a book than I am about Present Over Perfect. Um, maybe because it required the most life change, and that life change has been so fruitful. So I feel proud of that process, even if nobody reads the book. What it did in me was worth it, period. And so I'm so thankful for, where, for being where I was to where I am now in terms of connection to the people that are most important to me, um, connection to my faith in a deep way, a practice of silence, um, kind of that grounding love, um, even if, like, like somehow Zondervan called and they were like, we lost it, it vanished. I'd be like, you know what? This process was valuable enough for me. I, I mean, I hope they don't lose it. Um, we hope they don't either. So. <laughs> but it, it, this process has been the most transformative of any of them, and I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, totally. So one of the common critiques of memoir or personal narrative, whatever you want to call it, is that it's sort of self-indulgent for the author. Um, so hearing you talk about the process and it being transformative for you, is that ever problematic? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess I don't totally think about it in those terms because of how uh, 
the books that have shaped me so much have been memoir and narrative, and they've changed me. So they didn't feel self-indulgent to me at all. They felt like a gift that this author was giving to me. Um, so I would say uh, it feels more like an offering than a performance, at least maybe the good ones. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I could name 30 memoirs that didn't make me think like, hmm, pretty excited about your own life. They made me think, thank you for inviting me in to this story in which I can find pieces of my own story. Yeah, totally. Well, and my last question would be, what is your favorite interview question that you've ever been asked? Um, my guilty pleasures. What are your guilty pleasures? so many. <laughs> Tell us. I'm like all guilty pleasures. Um, fake cheese of any kind. Um, in a little can, in like a big vat, at a gas station, at a baseball game, any of it. If it's like melty and hot, that's like my jam. Um, uh, let's see. Videos of little children doing hip-hop dancing. Crazy about it. It's my favorite thing. Um, uh, dancing in the kitchen with my kids. My kids are, um, so uh, my, when my son Henry was six, he got this new babysitter named Jamie, and I heard them walking away, and they were just chatting, and she's asking him questions about himself, and I hear him say, well, pretty into hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> like, she asked you about your life, and that's what you say? <laughs> pretty into hip hop. So we dance a lot. We, we're, we're a dancing in the kitchen family. Uh, we also all have little scooters, like the little razor scooters, and we scoot around the neighborhood. We're like the dorkiest family ever. So my husband will come home from work and he'll go, family scoot! And we run out in the garage and we scoot around the neighborhood and it's just, having boys is like the most fun thing in the world. So my, my biggest pleasure is um, getting to be with them. Um, a lot of lightsaber fighting, a lot of, you know, um, but yeah. A lot of guilty pleasures. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for being with us. It's been a total pleasure. It's totally my pleasure. Many thanks to Shauna Nyquist. You can learn more about her work at shaunanyquist.com and follow her on Twitter at snyquist. Thanks also to Jen Hatmaker. You can learn more about her at jenhatmaker.com and follow her on Twitter at jenhatmaker. We loved hosting Shauna at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing and are thrilled that Jen will be joining us for the 2018 festival here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, April 12th through 14th. Jen will be among scores of writers speaking that weekend whose work grapples with faith in creative and complex ways. The festival is a three-day celebration of literature and belief and we invite you to join us as well. Check out our website for more information, festival.calvin.edu. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Today's episode was produced by John Brown, Amanda Smart, and yours truly. Our team includes Sarah Bass, Peter Ford, Gwyneth Finley, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, Deborah Reinstra, Sarah Ternage, Chloe Sellis, Isabel Sellis, Deborah Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful.
Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw at calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.